Today's podcast sponsor is MailStore. MailStore is the email archiving software for Microsoft Office 365 and Exchange that enables you to automatically prune the mailbox sizes of your users, keep a perfect copy in case of accidental deletion or malware attack, and it's also great for compliance such as GDPR. Available for servers or as a multi-tenant service provider edition version that you can host yourself as an MSP, head on over to mailstore.co.uk forward slash tubtalk for an incredible introductory offer just for tubtalk listeners and for a free 30-day trial. You're listening to Tub Talk, the podcast for IT business owners with our featured conversation with Richard Tubb and Ted Stone of Customer First UK. My name is Jeff Nicholson and this podcast is all about helping you grow your IT business. In this episode, Richard talks with Ted Stone, an American expat living in the UK for the past 14 years and a leading speaker and consultant in the fields of customer service delivery and customer experience development. He previously held senior managed positions with blue chip companies on both sides of the Atlantic. What you'll hear, the difference between customer services in the UK and the US, how MSPs can improve their customer service, how to give customers better experiences and how to deal with complaints. This episode was recorded between Richard and Ted at the Stand Comedy Club, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And now, without further ado, here's Richard Tubb talking with Ted. Hey folks, Richard Tubb here, and I'm joined today by a very special guest. Ted Stone is the Chief Executive of Customer First UK. He is an American expat, a Texan, who has now ended up living in Doncaster in the UK. More on that important story coming up shortly. Um, But Ted is a leading speaker and consultant in the field of customer service and customer experience development. As an organization, Customer First is the awarding body for putting the customer first standard. It's a national standard for customer service that has been adopted by over 600 organizations from across 20 industry sectors, ranging from sole traders to multinationals. Ted's going to be sharing a lot more about Customer First today and what he's learned from a career working in customer service improvements. Ted, thank you for joining us today. No worries. I'm glad to be here. So we're actually here at the Stand Comedy Club in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. We should share, first of all, I guess, why we're here and why we're here on a bank holiday Monday using this wonderful facility. How did this come about? Uh, It's just when you need a location, you contact the people that you know. And um, one of my good friends is in the management team here at The Stand. Um, I came to know them through other friends, as you do, you meet one. I am friends with Alfie Joey, who does uh, BBC Morning Radio in Newcastle. And then I met his comic partner, who's a guy named Cal Halbert, incredibly talented. And then I met his best friend, who's uh, Stu Edwards, who's on the management team here. And and they're all quite happy to like share their space and, and encourage any type of artistic or creative outlets. Or us. Exactly. We're going to hope that we're going to be artistic and creative. What are you doing? Don't give up so quick. So let's address something that I mentioned first of all, which is the accent. That is not a UK accent. That is not a British accent there. You've got a quite a fascinating backstory. And I want to get to customer first and customer service uh, and all of that shortly. But your story is too good to pass up. How on earth did a Texan end up living in Doncaster via via, uh, Las Vegas, I should say. Well, clearly, I did something wrong in a prior life. No, not really, not really. Um, I I, I don't know. I've kind of always been of 
the belief that you just kind of follow your gut and you go with things as they come up. Uh, I had moved from Dallas because the accent is clearly Dallas, Texas, and was living in Las Vegas and encountered uh, someone who was in senior management for one of the major banking companies that's over here. Um, they were trying to change their service offering at the time. We're looking to do something uh, uniquely different. Um, so they were interested in me coming over to kind of apply an American customer service approach toward their business in a limited contract, which I thought, okay, I'll do that. It was a really big decision at the time because I had a brilliant job in Vegas that I loved. But like any good American, I didn't even have a passport. I mean, I was quite happy to stay in my own country. But I thought, well, I'll dash over there. England's that big. In a year, I could, I could like get around and see all of it, surely. Just about could. I haven't, but you almost could. And um, as happens, you know, with life, um, 14 years later, in multiple jobs, several homes, where things just progress, and here I am. I'm progressively feeling more and more British in my outlook, in my understanding and appreciation of the British people and the British culture, although I just don't sound like it. Not any part <laughs> of the island do I sound like. None of it. So, And, and that's okay, because really, I mean, nothing against the lovely people of Doncaster who've taken me to their heart, but if I had to get rid of my accent, seriously, am I going to pick up that one? No, no, I think I'll stick with mine. So, Chief Executive of Customer First in the UK now, explain for people who are not familiar with Customer First, what the ethos is there, how do you help organisations? Um, well, Customer First is the, the owner of a standard called the Putting the Customer First Standard. And it was originally the work, the research, was commissioned by the government to establish the 30 statements within that standard, which were going to demonstrate a mandatory service level. At the time that they first established it, they used it as a tool to establish who could get and continue to receive grants and funding. So the government wanted to make sure that whoever they were giving their money to was delivering a service level that was acceptable if you were going to receive government money. Um, once the standard was breached and approached and built, it was so successful that there were people who weren't getting any funding who wanted to be able to take up the standard. And at that point, the government decided, hold on, we kind of don't need to own it because it's not really appropriate for us to be using it as a tool to establish funding over here, but then charging somebody else to use the same tool over here. So they sold it off and, and it became a privately owned entity, but it was set initially to be specific enough to really give you significant help with your service offering, but at the same time be broad enough to allow comparison between organizations from multiple sectors. So it, it really does build with what I call the foundational principles of customer service, but lets you then bespoke that approach to get into the detail of what your business needs. Give me some uh, ideas of companies in the UK that have taken the customer first approach or gone through the standard. Well, to be fair, whenever I first encountered customer first, I was a customer. Right. So before I was ever the chief exec, um, I'd gotten uh, an opportunity to do some contract work for a major utility company. Now, I'm not trying to upset any of the utility companies out there, but at the time, they weren't exactly known for exemplary service levels. So I went in, I was very excited to get started on the work and they just didn't want to know, as you say, in the UK. As a matter of fact, people got very offended that the American was telling them what was wrong with their customer service. And I thought, okay, even though I know that my 
ideas and intent is right, they're not taking this well from me. So I went out to look for a British standard that I could just be the mouthpiece of rather than the one who said, you must do it this way. And they took it much easier. I found the standard that way. And um, I, I looked at multiple standards that were out there. And the reason I picked customer first is there was a sustainability piece in it that I didn't see in the other options. And frankly, if I was gonna do that much work, I didn't wanna to have to keep doing it. I wanted something that would build on itself. And so um, I became kind of joined with Customer First as a customer. Um, at that point, I was working through that utility company. Since then, one of the things that we work with heavily is in the higher education, further education sector. Okay. Um, we have. Uh, it's our largest sector of organizations that are accredited with us right now. And in, in those, I think we've really seen a development in, in how they're approaching it and the reason why they need it. Um, but I try not to name off the specific companies who have it because I don't like for people to believe, oh, if it's okay for them, it's not okay for us. And that's why I don't name the specifics. When someone contacts us and says, are there businesses like ours? We're more than happy to tell you, yes, which ones there are, and clearly there are going to be. Good luck if you contact me with a business that's so unique and specific. We don't have anything related. I'll be astonished. But I try not to kind of pigeonhole it for people just so that they won't feel it's out of their grasp yeah, or not what, appropriate. We, we said, you know, when I was introducing you that uh, Customer First, I know that you work with all manner of organizations, bitty ones, small ones, all the way up to uh, massive multinationals. What do you think is the driving reason that people seek you out? I think um, because the, the very first thing that I did on day two when I took over as chief exec was change the entire approach of how we helped customers. I did this because as a customer, I knew what I wish they had done better. And I suddenly had the ability to change that. If I was the CEO, who else can change it? And I went in and said, y'all, it's a brilliant product. It absolutely helps. But, oh, Lord, you could have helped me quicker. And so I found a way for it to be easier. This, uh, this is the most common reason that we hear people are helping, coming to us for help now. We use a diagnostic assessment approach. So it doesn't require any paperwork or preparation. Frankly, why do you want to spend 12 to 15 months trying to fix your service and then come to me to have me say, yes, you either got it right or no, you got it wrong. If the answer is no, you got it wrong, you've wasted 12 to 15 months. If you come to us and use the diagnostic, even if your initial output outcome is not that you're compliant, we're going to immediately narrow down, this is where your time will be best spent and give you a tool to move forward. And that's what everybody really appreciates is it's, we're very conscious of wanting to save your time, your money, and your resource. And so the, the value in going through it is going through it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I always tell people, if what you're looking for is something to beautify your letterhead, we are probably not your best bet. There are things out there where you can do it easier than through us. If what you're looking for is an actual sustainable improvement that's going to make you kind of a sector leader in your organization and, and the people that you compete with, we're absolutely the one. Don't come to me for pretty letterhead. We have a really nice logo, but it's after you've gotten the benefit of it. Yeah. The benefit is literally the journey as much as the, the destination. Yeah, absolutely, I love that. Let's rewind a little bit then. Let's talk about customer service itself. Right. What is customer service? Do you know, uh, I think these days, it's something that people are more familiar with than they were when I first moved here 14 years ago. Um, customer service really is about not just doing 
what the customer came to you for, but doing it well, easily, politely, friendly. Um, any, any business, whatever service you're offering, whether it's an actual product or whether it's a service, that is how you're asking someone to come and engage with you as a customer. How you deliver that to them is what matters more than the product. People buy from people. Um, more than they just buy a specific product. I know. Can you give me, sorry, forgive me for interrupting. I'm fascinated, but give me an example that you've seen recently of customer service being done quite well that fits in with your ethos. I think the one that I referred to a few minutes ago, the universities and how they have literally raised their game. But can I just be honest? They didn't have a choice. In the past, people were often choosing the university um, financially. There were lots of decisions that were made because something was close to home where it was less expensive. Once tuition got leveled off as there is going to be a minimum amount, literally we couldn't even answer the phone fast enough for the universities that we were already working with who realized, oh, we have to take it to the next level because now people are deciding based on how does it feel to be a customer of the university. And gratefully, what they finally realized is that the customer isn't just the student, it's the parents of the student who are also reaching for the checkbook, it's the extended group around that student, and students know what they want for their money. And if you're not giving it to them, there's a university down the street or around the corner that will. So that sector has really raised their game when they had to, and it was hard for them. They didn't want to use the customer. They're very resistant to using the word customer. They want to call it student. But that's so restrictive. And I'm really, really proud of the the changes, the robust, active thinking changes I've seen going on in that sector that people are going to benefit from. I mean, thousands and thousands of students are going to benefit from these changes. And then we, as a result, as a community, are going to benefit from them having a better education. So I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of the fact for them that they raised their game Mm. and we just kind of helped them do it. I like it. Mm. Now, the predominant audience, the people are going to be listening to this, uh, our interview here, uh, is the owners of IT businesses or people who work within the IT industry. I've often made the sort of um, uh, equivalence between IT companies and the police force. Bear with me on this one. I'll explain why. Basically, the owners of IT businesses here who work with small businesses, they don't ever get a pat on the back because they just keep things running for their clients. They keep the systems up and running. So in the same way that you would never pick up the phone to the police force and say, hey, I've not been burgled overnight. Top job, thank you very much. It's very rare for any of our customers as IT business owners to pick up the phone and say, you know, things are just running. So customer service, in my opinion, is something that seems to fall fairly low on the totem pole of importance for IT business owners. Why should it be really important to them? How can it be a differentiator? Well, because frankly, what else is going to differentiate them? I mean, as someone who's not IT, can I tell you, if you give me this IT company, that IT company, and that IT company, and these are relationships and decisions I've had to make, the one I'm going to go with, more than price driven, is how comfortable is it for me to deal with them? How confident am I that they're going to keep everything I need running, running? Because if my stuff goes down and I can't get to it or I can't access the information that my clients and my customers need, then what are we doing? You know, What am I paying our people to do? What, how am I going to make it up to that customer? So 
for me, it's completely service driven. And I don't think that's just because I'm a service professional. I think that's how a lot of people feel about IT. Mm. You know, we're looking for somebody who's going to come in with an answer other than turn it off and back on again. Yeah, I really hate that one. <laughs> We've all had that one before. Absolutely, We've all had that yeah. from an IT desk in a large company. Have I've you made, turned it off I've and turned it on again? Of Absolutely. <laughs> and and I'm always like, oh my gosh, really? Don't make me get down under my desk unless this is really going to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> what are some common uh, touch points that people in all service industries overlook that perhaps is more important to the customer than, um, than we as the service industry give credit for? I'm sorry, explain that question to me again. You kind of went in two directions. There. No, no worries at all. So um, I will I'll rephrase that as best I can. So I think as uh, a lot of IT companies that I deal with, they think that the only time they really interact with customers would be telephone call or an email mm -hmm. coming in. In my opinion, there's lots of other touch points that they're just not really aware of. What's the most overlooked touch points within the service industry, perhaps that, that get sort of underserved? I think the thing that almost all businesses miss out on is the opportunity to give your customers more choice when they need it, when they want it, not just when they need it. So for example, as an IT company, the customer calls in, there's a problem. If, if we're in a perfect world, y'all are giving them several solutions to the problem and not just you must do this and you must do it immediately. But what I would really love to see people do is when everything, if you want that positive relationship when nothing's wrong, it's on the responsibility of the IT company as well as the client to have that relationship. So when everything's going well, that's a great time to contact the customer. Mm -hmm. Say everything's going well and we're considering some new developments within our business, which of these would be the most beneficial to you? Right. There you go. Not only does that help you with your development of your business moving forward, but it also is going to kind of tell you what's important to that client before they call you with a problem. Mm. You get a lot of information out of a positive, proactive, easy question instead of just when you're in like recovery mode. I think that touches what you just said there, touches on a quote that I've heard you say before, which I absolutely love, which is, all of your customers do not want the same thing. That's absolutely true. Can you elaborate on that quote a little bit for me? I can. And, uh, you know, trying to keep your audience in mind, let's go into it from that perspective. And something that if I have the audience of the IT professionals across the UK for a minute, oh, this is the point I want to get across. We all like to think that progressively we're getting a little bit more tech savvy because we all have more devices and we have more things that we're using on a regular basis. But it's just not true. <laughs> We all think we're more tech savvy than we are. And it only takes about 30 seconds for an IT person to remind you exactly how stupid you are. And that's when your customer experience has gone clear to the toilet. Understand the, the way that your client is talking to you and do not talk above them. I tell people in every customer service environment this same mantra which is if I have somebody who calls in who's as verbose as I am, that's gonna be a long call. But there's nothing that that's more challenging for me than calling and talking to a client who's maybe from the financial sector. I'm not trying to just group everybody, but typically they kind of like things in more of a bullet point format and my verbose approach is really grating for them. They find it really off-putting. So I have to remember to kind of rein it in and, and give back the same approach that they're giving to me. 
I, this is what I wish IT professionals would learn. Knowing a lot of technical terms doesn't impress us as a customer. It makes me feel stupid, and I don't like to feel stupid. And so then at that point, I kind of don't want to talk to you anymore. And so even though we might get the problem fixed right now at the first opportunity, I'm going to find somebody who doesn't make me feel stupid and can still fix the problem. And I think that IT professionals are particularly prone to get that wrong. So not some customers want that. Some customers feel like you've earned your money and proven how valuable you are by your technical expertise. Other ones really want you to talk to them in a way that helps them fix the problem without feeling like an idiot. So that's kind of my way of telling people they don't all want the same thing. If you want to go away with something that you can keep with you forever to never forget this point, do you know the one that I use when I'm doing like workshops for clients? No, go for it. Coffee. Okay, tell me more. If I tell you, oh, Richard, let's go have coffee, you can say yes. I have absolutely no faith that I can walk in and order it for you. It's coffee. But you stand in the queue at any of the major coffee shops and listen to five orders. Given the opportunity, at the very first point, they're personalizing that coffee order to ridiculous degrees. They're having fat soya, camel milk, something I don't even know. The options that are out there now is just crazy. But we all say we're going to have a coffee. And yet very few of us just have a coffee. It's a latte, it's cappuccino, it's a soy this, it's an almond milk that. There's no way I can know that unless I give you the opportunity to let me know what's important to you and what you like. Mm. And so you should remember that with your clients. You couldn't order their coffee form, so don't assume you know exactly how they want you to approach this. Keep them as an active participant in the conversation. That makes a lot of sense. Let's rewind a little bit. You were just talking, yeah, to paraphrase, and correct me if I'm wrong here, almost like mirroring what you hear. That's so right. if somebody's very verbose, I love to talk. You may not have gathered that yet, Ted, but um, but I know when I'm talking to some business owners, actually, they just want to get straight to the point Absolutely. about things. How can we instill that in um, customer service? people? If, for instance, IT companies, people who work on the help desk, or the front-facing people who speak to clients more often, how can that be taught You know, to almost mirror the people they're speaking to? I think in the IT sector, it's very important to have them actually practice it when they're not on the phone with a real client. Right. That you do that actual kind of role play scenario of having them talk to somebody who's less proficient with you know technical issues and somebody else who's very proficient and see where, where do they sit. Once you know what the skill set of your staff is, if possible, and if your phone tree will allow it, then there are ways that you filter that call so that there's someone who's really adept at determining how the client's responding, who pops the calls out to the right person. Okay. So that you have some people that are very technical and very right there, and you have other people that are very friendly and very approachable and gonna bring everything down a level mm. to make sure you understand. Um, and, and if you can have one person who filters it, then that would help you. And certainly in our industry, uh, managed service providers, we call that the dispatcher. That's the person sure. who would answer the telephone call, be an advocate for the customer. Absolutely. And say, Let's, um, let me put you across to the person who's best served to... Uh, and to then what really helps you moving forward is there should always be a follow-up call to that client. You get their feedback on what they thought of that engagement piece. Right. And the next time that client calls in, if possible, give them back to the same person. Yeah, makes absolute sense.
What also makes sense to me is, and I think as an American, you're well-placed to answer this, many folks, myself included, point to um, US customer service as being the best. Mm -hmm. Have a nice day, thank you, and you know all the things that go along with it. They would say it's vastly superior to UK customer service or anywhere else in the world. In your opinion, as a Texan now living in Doncaster, is that true or not? I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you a twofold answer here. <laughs> yes, I absolutely believe that US service is superior to UK service. But I'm not saying US service is necessarily the ultimate because I've been other places in the world where the service was exceptional. And so um, I've kind of noticed what I always thought was the reason our service is better in the States than the UK service. And I can back it up with the other countries that I've seen where they have exceptional service. You won't believe where I believe it comes from, but um, it's the tipping society that we have in the States yeah. um, with our waiters, with the bartenders, etc. So starting at what I call base level customer engagement with those people that are front facing, you know, roles, we tip so much. People don't realize in the UK that Whereas we have a minimum wage that you're required to pay anyone in the U.S., that does not apply to service personnel. Bartenders and waiters can be paid a fraction of the minimum wage legally. The primary part of their income comes from the tip. Mm. So the service levels that you get are off the chart because if they don't give you that service, you don't tip them. They can't pay their rent. They can't pay their phone bill. When I first moved over here and I went out to have drinks with people, we ordered a round of drinks and I got ready to tip the bartender and this woman next to me slapped my hand and literally said, don't screw up our whole economy. We don't do that. And I was like, honey, maybe you should because after a while you're going to be dehydrated and I'm going to get a drink. <laughs> and it was a fact. As it went on, I didn't ever have to wait for a drink at that bar. They would knock people out of the way when I would approach the bar yeah. for a pound coin. Yeah. And I was like, are y'all learning any lesson here? When it starts and you have that elevated service levels in those what I call base service positions, then in any professional organization, you've got to raise your game above that because that's what I'm used to having all the time, anywhere, everywhere. So you've got to bring it up a notch. When you don't have that over here, then you're starting from a, from a lower point. Now, service has picked up dramatically in the 14 years I've lived here, and I put that heavily on the fact that more people travel abroad. And that y'all have finally understood having a, that stiff upper lip does not mean that you can't tell somebody when the service was bad. You're never going to get see an improved level of service if you didn't identify the opportunity to improve it. And y'all are notorious for telling a waiter that your meal was fine and then whinging in the car all the way home. And that didn't help anybody. The waiter didn't know. The person riding with you didn't serve you. I don't know how you think that's going to help. But once you started traveling abroad and getting good service and coming back and thinking, wait, why can't I have this service at the restaurant down the street from me? You started making people aware of your expectations and it has improved. So for us with our uh, stiff upper lip as Brits, yeah. um, how, how do you complain about things politely? So if a meal comes out, it's not to your standards, and, and the waitress comes across and says, is everything okay for you? Of course, we as Brits go, as you just said, yes, yes, it's fine, and then mm -hmm. complain about it later. How you do. do you address that situation? Well, you have to remember, she did not make the meal. How could you possibly be hurting her feelings to tell her that the meal isn't okay? Yes, it's going to give her a few extra steps, but that's the best way to do it. You preface your statement by saying, 
I know you were not stood over the grill, but this isn't quite right. Is there any way you could have them look at this for me? You let her off the hook. You acknowledge you didn't do it. I mean, whenever I talk to companies, whenever I go out and I'm working with a business, one of the cards that I play hard at the very beginning is, tell me the truth. You could not possibly offend me because whatever concerns you have between yourself and your employer that are restricting the service levels, they didn't come from me because I don't work here. So you couldn't possibly hurt my feelings. Tell me the truth. That is something that you should always kind of go toward is making people aware when it's their fault, when it isn't their fault, yeah. but that you're just using them as a partner to get an improved outcome. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Mm. I'm also intrigued about customer service for one specific industry. I know this is a podcast and a video for IT companies. Mm. We cannot go past this the rail industry, you've done work in the rail industry. Now, I'm not making any wild accusations here about the levels of customer service in the rail industry, but surely that must have been a challenge for you. It, it was a challenge, and do you know what people are always surprised to hear is I courted that industry. I uh, contacted the, the major owners and providers proactively because I saw an opportunity there where I frankly thought, you could use the help. I, I travel all over the UK via train. Uh, I mean, I came up here today from Yorkshire on the train. And I honestly felt like, you know, it's in everybody's interest for me to kind of get involved in this sector. Mm. And it's not going to do me any harm either because I ride on the train. So I went out and it took some work to get them to understand because one thing about the rail sector, they all tend to do the same thing. If they're all doing any one thing, they all do the same thing. When they all got very involved with Lean and Six Sigma, they all did Lean and Six Sigma. They all get ready to do one thing, they all do something else. And it's always because there's a future franchise bid coming up and they all want to have ticked the same box. So I had to make them understand, you've got to stop being reactive. The rail industry lives and dies by the NRPS scores, which are the National Rail Passenger Survey, right? They come out twice a year, and when they do come out, what you find is that in any given rail industry, they'll have little red dots where they're not getting it right. And in six months' time, if you look at their scores, those red dots have shifted up to amber or maybe green if we're lucky, and they have brand new red dots. They just, like, come over here and fix these, and those pop up. It's like the, those songs with the little ball that bounces over the words. <laughs> it's just like that. So I went and told them, I said, you've literally got to get on top of this. You have to do it proactively yourself. Here's the truth. I got three of them that came to the table and got really involved and went through the entire accreditation. All three of them had their highest National Rail Passenger Survey scores ever after we had finished working with them. All three of them did it because they had a franchise bid or something that was coming up. And the moment that decision was made, all three of them pulled out and wouldn't continue, and all three of their scores went lower than they were before we started. I, I am so frustrated with the rail industry being in this constant war with the unions and nobody paying attention to the impact of what you're doing to the customers. I'm really sorry. I understand the rail industry as well as anybody, but you cannot raise your ticket prices every January like clockwork and be having the same service problems you had the year before. People are going up in their loft and dusting off the same placard they had the year before and going back to like protest at their local station, and rightly so. When they were doing something more proactive, I saw the improvement, and it was heartbreaking to see them getting it right and then shift back into 
neutral. Yeah. And and so I I make these calls and send these emails out every week where I still want to work with them. I still think that there's an opportunity there. I think that the public would appreciate knowing that they're trying to do something to improve not just timetables and performance, but actual understanding what's important to the client. Um, and I, I don't see it yeah. right now. And to touch upon something you said there, goes right back to the start of our conversation where you said the real value in the customer first journey is the journey exactly. of going through it. I think that also points to the fact that uh, this isn't just a tick box exercise. This is not just a one off get an accreditation and everything's going to be a okay. Customer service is an ongoing journey, isn't it? Absolutely. Something you need to. And one working. thing I am really proud of is that any time that a franchise turns over in the rail industry, what you normally find is that the most senior people in the organization leave and and somebody brings in their new people. Even if the previous owner keeps the franchise, the senior roles tend to turn over. The people who were in the senior roles when we were walk, working with the three tops that we worked with have all contacted me to work with them in the industries that they're in now because they saw the value of the standard. I'm really proud of that, that people who actually went through it understood and appreciate the value. But and I think that that's, you know, you have to kind of take solace where you can. That even though we're not getting to help um, the ones that I think would help more of the public right now, um, that the people who actually benefited from it at the time saw the actual value mm. and, and have contacted me. One of them is now working in Australia and has contacted us and said, can you help us over here? And I said, absolutely. And so, you know, that's great. They went to the other side of the world and still contacted us back. Yeah. So I'm glad about that. That's awesome. Sorry about everybody who's on the train right now, doing the best you can. But, <laughs> or actually, who's probably on a rail replacement bus right now. Or wait, um, waiting oh, for Lord, a I'm saying right now, I'm telling yeah. you. <laughs> well, that, this is a good segue into my next question, which is to do with bureaucracy and red tape. So I think, you know, we're, we're, we're in the right ballpark there with the train companies. Um, you and I have talked before about workarounds and the fact that if you as an organization want something done in a, a, an exacting way and your customers want to do things in another way, mm. they will find a workaround for yeah, it. They will. Um, it can be ridiculous. It can be frustrating. The obstacles that we put in front of people can you share a little bit more about workarounds and some of the some of the ones you've seen in any industry, really? Which, you know, now that you look back on it, it's like, why would we ever try to get a customer to do things that way? I'll tell you my favorite one recently, especially because we're right here near the end of August and everybody has either just had a holiday or, or whatever. And it's um, in the airlines. Um, people booking their seats. Now, especially because basically every airline makes you pay to pick the exact seat. Seriously, I can't believe that they think it would be better for everybody to just go charging onto the plane like a football scrum. So it's got to help them for you to have a precise seat, but they're trying to make an extra pound so they charge you to pick the seat. People find this so offensive that they've paid for the ticket. Most of the time they're paying for the luggage. They're, they might be paying for the meal, paying for all kinds of stuff now. Um, and so what they're tending to do when you have a seat that has like a, a, a configuration of three seats past the aisle, people book aisle and window on purpose. They're like paying, so they're, they're going to book aisle and window. You go out and you look at a plane right now where people are booking the seats and you see these two straps all the way down it and the center seats are empty. This is people saying, I'm so appalled by the fact that you're making me pay to pick this seat. 
I'm going to make it harder on you. I want more space for my money, and nobody is ever going to voluntarily put themselves in the center seat. So if, if this goes the right way for me, I'm going to end up with all that extra space. And this should tell the airlines they're not happy about having to pay to book the seat. They're not happy with the amount of space you're giving them. So there are two opportunities here that you need to consider. Do we need to address this? Is it something that's in our interest to try and improve this customer service experience? That's an example that not only do I think it speaks volumes, but a lot of people watching this podcast will have done it. Mm. People do it. And it's a literal workaround. You're, you know the way anybody else would expect to do it, but you're just trying to get more for your money, more for your experience. Yeah. And kind of pressing the point. I've also uh, heard you talk before about the airline industry, which I think is a great example, isn't it, of some of the best customer service that you can find and some of the, the absolute worst customer mm -hmm. service you can find uh, to do specifically with meals on airlines. Now, I want to talk about what people, how they try to maximize the value that they get from something. And you gave me a story, didn't you, about the uh, why there's been a sudden upswing in the people, the number of people have, who have perhaps got intolerances. And all of a sudden, people have got these incredible dietary restrictions. And it's because, I'm telling you, they're figuring out how to work around the airline system so that they don't feel like cattle. They've been shoved onto the plane. The moment that you put in any type of those special meal requests, which anybody on a plane can do, um, that meal gets made fresh for that flight. All the other meals might have been on that plane going back and forth twice if it's if it's a shuttle flight that goes back and forth. But dietary restricted meals are made fresh for the flight that you're booked down. So if you tell them you're lactose intolerant or you're, you need to have gluten-free or you can't have nuts or whatever it is, that meal is made. So for example, the diabetic meals, this one, they're really popular. We've never had such an outbreak of diabetes as when people are ordering their meal. And it's because the whole rest of the meal is basically the same as everybody else, but it's fresher. It was made just for you. The only thing that you're not getting is that dessert, which is often suspect anyway. I mean, seriously, I can build a house out of those brownies. But all of a sudden you have like fresh fruit. That's because as a diabetic, you can have fresh fruit. But even better yet, it's the first meal they serve, no matter where you're sat on the plane. Those dietary restricted meals have to come out first because they have to make sure it gets to the right person. They can't afford to have you having some big you know, medical emergency at 37,000 feet. So you're gonna get yours first. Not bad news. Um, you're not gonna get a drink with that. So don't choke because <laughs> if, if you're not sat near the front of your cabin, the meal's coming out first, but you're gonna be dehydrated before that drink gets there because they're not gonna serve you that first. That workaround hadn't come up yet. You better bring the water on board with you. But you have to buy it after you've gone through security, otherwise they're gonna take it off you. See, there's a lot of things to consider here. <laughs> there certainly is. But yeah, the meals, um, definitely something where you can see this massive swing and how many people are requesting those. So why haven't the airlines, and there's an analogy here for all businesses because these workarounds exist in all businesses. Why haven't the airlines said, this is crazy. We know that the vast majority of people are now saying they're diabetic or I heard somebody refer to pesca, pesca, pescarian the other day. Mm -hmm. I, they can only eat fish that eat fish. Right. <laughs> Which is another brilliant one. Um, but why aren't the airlines saying, right, let's do away with this charade. Why don't we just raise the, you know, the, the level of uh, value we, we place on this? Think this through, Richard. Who are you going to tell as an airline 
I don't believe you have an allergy. I'm just going to give you some food and let's see how that works out. <laughs> You're not going to do that. I mean, you can't afford to do that. So the next option would be no meal. You've, you better be Suburban careful. Going up, you better going be careful. Down. Exactly. Right. It's that lowest common denominator, isn't it? So you have to be very careful. When those workarounds start getting excessive, yeah. one of the possible outcomes is they bring it all down. Yeah. Let's talk on that theme a little bit further then. Uh, instead of bringing it down, we're talking about bringing it up. Airlines, again, a great example, um, when you get the tap. Yes. Well, explain what the tap is for people who are unfamiliar with it and the whole idea of plus ones upgrades. The, the tap is when you see somebody who's back in economy and they're sat there in their seat and then right before the plane gets ready to take off, here comes one of the trolley dollies down the aisle and they're coming through and they're coming through and they lean over and just tap you and say, excuse me, just get your bag and follow me. What that actually, what has actually happened is that trolley dolly is the next door neighbor of the cousin of the like postmistress of the person that used to live down the street from you three years ago. And there happens to be one seat up in premium economy or business that's empty. And somebody has emailed somebody who's called somebody. And at the very last minute, when they're sure it's going to be empty, that person gets the tap. And then they get up and they walk very smugly up through the plane, dragging their little luggage behind them. And, and they're suddenly about to have a different experience than everybody else on that plane. Even the people who were set in the same class of travel. Because this person is about to get an incredibly higher level of service than they paid for or expected. So all of a sudden, this is way beyond their expectations, um, what they had actually kind of worked out to get by telling you which ticket they bought. The ticket determines how important is service to me, but now all of a sudden they're going to get a, a higher level of service. So that's what I call a plus one. Plus ones are something that every business should look for anyway. But this is the most obvious one. Now, what I tell people is, unless that plane crashes, that person who got tapped and walked through the sainted curtain to the next one, that person is tweeting before the plane leaves the ground about how fabulous this flight is. They're going to get the last meal option in that cabin because they didn't pay to be there. They're going to get the last drink option in that cabin. And it's still going to be the greatest flight they've ever had in their life because it's more than they expected. And that's what really exceptional service should always feel like, is that I've satisfied all of the things that you need from me as a customer and done something extra for you. And that, that's the whole mentality behind Plus One Service. How can we take this and apply this to businesses that are not airlines? Mm -hmm. How can we look for plus ones? What would be a good plus one, for instance, for an IT company? You're working with someone, instead of just looking after their IT, what would a, a good plus one look like? I know you're not familiar with the industry, but I'm sure there's some really basic, easy examples that you can think of. There, do you know what? There are some easy examples, but... I'm always afraid that I'm going to get this question from any sector about what's a good plus one. Right. And what I will always tell somebody is, there's your first problem, because you should never give somebody a plus one. You should give somebody several options of what a plus one is. Right. You've got to have the customer involved in the active decision making of what they find to be important. So you need to know what you can comfortably offer them and what you can then deliver against. But there should always be several options. So I'll give you an example of where um, for men, it's frequently wrong and for women, it's better. And this is something that goes on in retail. Um, and I've talked about this. You've heard me talk about this. Uh, cologne. 
uh, you go out in the summer to our bottle of cologne, they sell you the cologne and say, thank you very much, if you're lucky. And then you take your <laughs> cologne and you leave. You go out and buy the same blooming cologne in December and they sell you the cologne and say, oh, and here's your gym bag. I don't know why they do it. It really makes me mad when they do it because, first of all, I might have a lovely gym bag. Second, I might not even want a gym bag. Third, are you implying that I need to go to the gym? Because that's just rude. So, um, and this is where they get it wrong. With women, they go out and they buy perfume or they buy cosmetics, and they're usually given several options of would you like to have this or this or this along with your purchase. Do you see how automatically that's better? Yeah. Because the woman's an active decision maker in the plus one. So what I tell any business, whether it's IT or somebody else's, you need to know what's available, but there should always be a range of options. And typically, please don't go out and start like reinventing the wheel. If you have a client that's at a certain contractual level with you, you want to offer them a plus one, look at things that are automatic pieces of an elevated contract level. So customers that are a bit higher up the chain, you've already got it over here. So to offer this client one of several options that are up there, not only does it make them feel special, but hopefully you're gonna grow that client into the upper level contract that you can also offer. So um, that's why I don't struggle to tell people precise plus ones because I don't even want you to do that. I want you to give them options of plus ones. And they usually come from your elevated service levels that you're offering to different clients. Makes absolute sense, yeah. What's the worst example of customer service that you've ever seen? Uh, Do you know there's a lot? Can you narrow it down? I can tell you one that I I personally experienced and I was just astonished even while it was going on. And it was an airline. And I was flying back from the States into the UK and I almost always fly direct. But on this particular occasion, I had a connection. And my flight that was departing was delayed by over two and a half hours leaving. And I knew emphatically and could show you on my ticket that my connection was an hour and 15 minutes. So unless we're somehow gonna hit some Concord level of speed, I know before I get on the plane, I'm missing that one. So what are you going to do to help me with this? And can we talk about it now? Because we have nothing else to do during the two and a half hours while I'm sat here being delayed. And they just refused. Like, until you get there, it hasn't happened. And I was like, but you know it's going to happen. (laughs) There's no way you're getting me there in time for this connection now. And unfortunately, that flight that I'm connecting to is the last flight out this evening from there. So I'm about to be stuck and I know I'm going to be stuck. Why won't you help me? Do you know why they wouldn't help me? Actually. Because even though I had booked the ticket through one airlines, they were using two different providers as they often do. And it was their principle that that flight that I missed was on the other airline. So it was their problem to figure out what to do, even though they made me miss it. So they knew if they made me wait until I got to the other end, everybody was going to wash their hands. It's just going to be off off their plates and on somebody else's. Exactly. Wow. Wow. And it was so frustrating to have somebody stand in front of you who could clearly see what you're seeing. Like, this is going to be a problem. We can all agree that this is going to be a problem and, and still not help you. What would you have liked them to do in that situation? What could you, what advice would you give them to say, you know, I know this situation was probably out of your control. 
but you could have handled this a lot better and here's how you could have handled it better. What I would like for them to do is give me an option of rebooking the whole thing. Don't make me get on this first flight when I know I'm going to get stuck halfway. Let me stay here because I'm going to have an easier time finding some place to stay where I am right now and then start over tomorrow with a fresh set of flights. I, I wanted that airline to make that call. Now, to be fair... I was departing from Las Vegas, and nobody gets upset about one more night in <laughs> Vegas, do they? So I would have rather had that than be stuck at the New York airport all night, which is where I was connecting through. But more importantly, it would have just made sense. You've just come from the location that you're leaving. It would have been easier to go back yeah. and find a place to stay and come back. Even if I had to find that myself, let me do it all tomorrow. And they wouldn't do that either. They said if I skipped the flight, then I had to pay for a new flight the next day. So they forced me to get on the plane and then stuck me in New York. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. It was bad. So we're, we're here in the uh, stands, Comedy Club. Um, I'm pretty sure the stage we can see behind us here are seen more than a few hecklers. Um, complaints for organizations mm. on that subject. How should we, as organizations, effectively deal with complaints from customers? I'll tell you my first rule of thumb. Do not get defensive. Everybody's going to make mistakes or everybody's going to feel like a mistake has been made at some point. It's entirely possible for you to get a complaint and you haven't actually screwed up any part of the customer experience. Mm -hmm. There's an interpretation on the customer side that you got something wrong. So don't get defensive listen to what they're saying. I tell everybody dealing with complaints, and you can imagine how hard this is for me personally, to talk half as much as you listen. So I find that very hard because my mother swears I have a DJ gene in me, and if there's open air time, I feel the need to just keep talking. But um, so I tell complaints, don't get defensive, talk half as much as you listen. Confirm back with the client exactly what they're telling you they think is wrong. And then start from there. So you've got to be really clear on what the complaint is. And if possible, and this is not always possible, I admit, but if possible, it's best to let them tell you from the beginning what what fix they would like to see. Because you might not be able to do it, but at least you know where you're starting, where their expectation is compared to what you have available to you to to offer. Mm. Um, Once you get the initial complaint sorted and have a resolution on how you're going to move forward and that client is accepting that resolution, the other thing that's equally important is to later sit down with an open mind and consider the root cause of that complaint and make sure that it gets addressed more than the individual situation. You don't want 12 more of the same complaint. So it might be somebody who just took offense to something which is normally how it should have gone and you're just making them happy and dealing with their situation. But you you always need to consider that. You need to consider the root cause. Is this something that's going to keep rearing its head? Mm. So very, very important. Deal with this, then consider the root cause, and then if at all possible, Communicate back with that customer to tell them, thank you so much. I hope you were happy with the way we resolved that. We looked at this afterwards and realized that this was something we could do better. And this is what we're planning to do moving forward. How would that feel to you as a customer? So they know you've taken them very seriously, that you've tried to make a long-term improvement off of their situation, and that then you've brought it back to them, which again means you weren't denying the fact that the situation ever existed. That's fantastic advice. And I think a lot of that goes to this um, human need to be acknowledged, doesn't it? get frustrated more than anything else where 
you know, I feel as though I've been hard done by by an organization. I take the time to feedback to them and say, here's what went wrong, here's how I would have liked it to be treated. And that just disappears off into a black hole. And you think, could not care less. And that makes you feel really small, doesn't it? How, how can we make sure that um, the people within our organizations um, take that attitude of, you know, we're here to, to take on that advice and to, to make things better, continuous improvement? Do you know what I've done in the past? Whenever I had an organization that just couldn't seem to get it. All right. It was, it was a larger organization. So I had this opportunity available to me. Um, once the situation was resolved with the client and we were at root cause analysis, right? Um, that root cause analysis was sent to a senior manager over a different part of the business mm. to make sure there wasn't a defensive stance taken. So somebody who was not involved in this situation, but who was senior enough to have a strategic point of view, got to consider whether or not this was something that needed to be addressed by the business in a larger capacity. And then those conversations were held from one senior manager to another senior manager to the customer service and complaints team all involved so that everybody was going to share that responsibility. You might be the one who's making the judgmental call right now because you're the senior manager I gave it to, but later there's going to be a root cause complaint from your area that's going to go to someone else. So it, it stayed very balanced and people didn't want to bring down the hammer because the hammer was going to swing at them one of these days. but. By taking it out of their personal level of responsibility, people didn't get precious about it. And so it was easier to get to a long-term kind of sustainable fix. Mm, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Something else that springs to mind as well is when I've been dealing with people in these situations, um, there seems to be a lack of common sense, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> if that makes common sense. How do we give people the, the leeway, the latitude within our organizations to say, hey, if it's good common sense, make it happen? Do you know what? I, I always tell people, literally, that the best approach when it comes down to something like that, where you're having to make a judgment call about a, a customer engagement piece and, and what you need to do about it, is um, ask forgiveness, not permission. If it's the right thing to do, do it. Yeah. But then by asking per forgiveness, what that means is after you've done it, you have to let someone know. Now, it may be the case that you've overstepped and that one resolution is a little bit further than we want to go all the time but that one resolution was the right thing right then and that will be the opportunity to talk about it. okay in future let's just step that back a bit because I think that was a little bit overkill that that's one decision is typically not going to break or bank you know bankrupt any business yeah. so if it's the right thing for that client make the decision and then consider later whether or not it perhaps you went a step too far. Yeah, but it's important to back up the employee, back Absolutely. up the member, Absolutely. so they don't get this fear of, oh, I can't make a decision, let me just speak to a supervisor. Common sense is common sense. Do you it? know what, that, that is so irritating to a customer to think, okay, why are you on the phone if you can't do anything? And that's what customers feel. I'm a customer of lots of people. If you're on the phone and you can't do anything, why are you on the phone? And unfortunately, I've asked more than a few people that question. If I'm on the phone, as a customer of my own, and I'm the customer, and I'm talking to somebody. I mean, I, I was on the phone with an organization last week, and I literally stopped and said, would it help you if I, I paused for a minute and let you read further ahead in that script you're reading? Because <laughs> it was so clear that the outcome was going to be what was ever on the piece of paper. Because if you can't read well, don't read. 
<laughs> memorize it, do something. But it was so obvious that it was being read to me that I literally, with just dripping sarcasm, said, would you like me to stop for a minute so you can read ahead and see where we're going to end up on this? Um, which just totally screwed up the call, frankly. It, it didn't go well after that. I'm probably in a training loop right now. Um, there are people in a new group holding hands, singing Kumbaya and listening to my call. <laughs> but maybe they'll have an improvement later. So my script tells me that we're coming to the end of our time together. I can't let you go without asking if you could wave a magic wand for organizations all across the world, small ones, itty bitty, big ones, multinationals. If you could wave a magic wand to help them to make their customer service better, what, what would you do? I would tell you that you have to remember what the intent behind customer service is. Your service or your product or whatever is, is one thing. That's, that's why you're in business. Customer service is about how does it feel to do business with you. Not what is the outcome of that customer engagement, but how does it feel to do business with you? I mean, perfect example. When I moved here initially, I needed, and I'm just going to say, I needed a phone <laughs> in my home. And I'm, I'm not going to use any company's name because that would just be rude. But the company's name just had letters in it. I'll just say that. And I have not lived here my whole life. So I don't know these people. Well, I've never British, had, British they, they might be, yeah. yeah. And I, I've never had any actual engagement with them, right? So there's no reason for me to think that this is going to go any way but well. Except for the 19 people who couldn't help themselves but stop and tell me it was going to go bad. I mean, literally everybody said, oh, it's going to be awful. You're going to go to war. It's never going to end. I, having to make that first call, I had like a canteen and a bedroll and I was ready to be there so long I needed a shave because I knew this was going to go bad. So what I tell people is that's customer service. And I'm already having the experience and you don't even know I exist as a customer. So understand this. We, none of us, can go back in time and rewrite history. Whatever has gone on before in your business is where it is. You have to give yourself the opportunity and permission to draw a line in the sand and say, we're going to start from where we are, and we're going to learn, and we're going to improve, and we're going to get better, because the service expectations that somebody has from us tomorrow are based on what we did last week. We can only really affect that in future if we start to improve tomorrow. And I think that's fair. And people just have to allow themselves to adopt that outlook. Understand the final suggestion. And this is what I tell anybody who asks me, what is good service? Richard. <clears throat> oh, we just pause there. Yeah, just two seconds and then we'll just quickly get to one again. So perhaps just rewind to the bit where you're just about to say, understand what is good service. Yeah, that. Is that all right? Cool. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. So I think the one thing that I would tell anybody who just wants the, the easy reminder of what is good service, this is your basic rule of thumb to move going forward. Imagine that the client that you're dealing with is your grandmother and approach that interaction the same way that you would deal with her. We all have a certain way that we'll talk to colleagues, friends, partners, parents, Anyway, like that. But when it gets to your grandparents, it changes. Um, our tone changes. How far we'll go to explain something and make sure that they understand and they're comfortable with it changes. So if all else fails and you don't know if you're getting it right, use that as your litmus test. If this is the way myself or anybody would treat their grandparent, 
then that's the best you can do is, is treat them with consideration, concern, respect, making sure that they're clear, that they're happy with the way it's going forward and that it feels comfortable to them. That is what's beyond the product or service that you offer. It's how it feels to do business with you. I should be completely comfortable picking up the phone or walking in to deal with you, not have a feeling of dread. If it's causing people that, you're getting it wrong. Fantastic. This entire uh, time I've spent with you has been fantastic and I suspect we've only just scratched the surface of that knowledge that you've got up there in your head about customer service. For anybody uh, listening or watching this and wants to get in touch to have a conversation with you or to find out more about Customer First UK, how can they get in touch with you? There's a couple of ways that are really easy. Clearly, you can go to our website. It's www.customerfirst.org. Um, and it's really clear. You see immediately that it's us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Customer First UK. Um, you can find us through LinkedIn or clearly... Uh, because they're all linked to you. They can contact you, and you can pass on the information to me. Who knew that when I sat down, you were going to become my PA? That's just the way things go. I'm always looking for people to provide me additional service, and there you go. I love what you did there. Ted, I love what you've done for this last hour speaking to me. Thank you so much, mate. really appreciate it. Anytime. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Tub Talk, the podcast for IT business owners. You can find the show notes and bonus content for this interview, along with dozens of other interviews with IT business leaders over at www.tubblog.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we'd really appreciate you rating and reviewing the show over at iTunes. Every review helps us reach new listeners and helps raise the bar for success in the IT industry. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak with you next episode. Have a great day. If your clients use Office 365 or Exchange, then I have no doubt you come across those with ridiculously large mailboxes. The users who accidentally delete messages and then have no way of getting them back. And also some who you just know are going to click a message that's going to bring ransomware their way. MailStore is the email archiving software that enables businesses to keep a perfect, tamper-proof, encrypted and de-duplicated copy of all their messages that's instantly available via Outlook or via a responsive web interface. Available as a free 30-day trial and as both a server edition and a service provider edition that you can host centrally on your own hardware to service all of your clients. MailStore and UK Disty Zen Software have a limited introductory offer for TubTalk listeners that's not to be missed. Head on over to mailstore.co.uk forward slash TubTalk for details. Hey team, this is Richard again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is MSP Insights. Now, every Tuesday, I share my thoughts on the business of IT with you, the managed service community. Thousands of managed service providers already subscribe to MSP Insights. It's easy to sign up, easy to cancel. MSP Insights is basically a short email from me every Tuesday without fail with advice on growing your IT business, plus cool resources I found, discovered, or started exploring that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things and often includes articles or books I've read, tools I've discovered and events I think you'd be interested in, often sent to me by my friends and Tub Talk podcast guests. So if that sounds fun, a short tiny bite of MSP goodness every Tuesday and you'd like to try it out, just go to go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. That's go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.